You're listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. I can't describe how frightening it was to uh, realize suddenly that, oh my gosh, this could be the, this could be the big one. On a freezing Friday morning, November the 30th at 8.29 a.m., just as Anchorage, Alaska was starting another workday, a week after Thanksgiving, it was hit by a magnitude 7.1 earthquake. The epicenter was just seven miles northwest of the city. Within minutes, a 5.7 aftershock rolled through, followed by dozens of smaller aftershocks. Now, Alaska is no stranger to earthquakes. When we talk about quakes, most of us immediately think California. But Alaska actually has up to 24,000 quakes a year. And let's not forget that it was the site of the infamous 1964 Good Friday quake, a magnitude 9.2 lasting over a minute and a half and killing nearly 140 people. It was, in fact, the most powerful earthquake ever to hit the United States. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm joined today by Christine Johnson, Administrative Director for the Alaska Court System. Welcome, Christine. Thank you, Peter. Also joining us today is Alice Roberts, Special Projects Coordinator for the Alaska Courts. Welcome to you, Alice. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be here. How do the Alaska Court's emergency response plans hold up when put to the test of a major quake? Unlike a storm, you don't get warnings that an earthquake is coming. On the other hand, with thousands of quakes every year, a major one can't be entirely unexpected. Most importantly, what can we take away from Alaska's experience and its preparations? Alice, let me start with you. Where were you when the earthquake started, and what did you do? I was in my office alone, and because the walls that make up the offices in my area are not as structurally sound as the main entrance walls, I grabbed my phone and I ran to the door frame at the main entrance and stood there. I remember going through a minor earthquake back when I was working at the Santa Clara Superior Court. I recall actually becoming slightly nauseated just as it started. Alice? What were your first thoughts as you realized that it was an earthquake and that it felt like it was going to be a big one? Well, Peter, my initial reaction in the first second or two, I would say, is that this was an earthquake like many others I've experienced. And I honestly intended to kind of stay seated at my desk and continue working. But about a split second later, I knew this was not like any other earthquake I experienced. And My initial reaction was somehow get to safety, but I would tell you, knowing what safety was, was not evident. I was very conflicted about what I should do. I I was conflicted about whether I should get under my desk, get under a doorframe. When I was under the doorframe, I was really conflicted about, should I stay inside? Should I go outside? When I thought about going outside, I've had this longstanding fear because of my familiarity with images related to the 1964 quake with the ground opening up. And so it was a very 
challenging situation that I just wasn't certain about what the safest course of action was. Christine, Alice, how did your families fare during the quake? Were your homes affected? The ground in this part of Alaska is really different depending on where you are. And some homes were not affected at all, and there were others that suffered major structural damage, or it looked like somebody had just picked the house up and shaken it so that all of the furniture and the pictures on the walls and the things in the kitchen were just topsy-turvy. My family was fortunate enough to live on the south side of the municipality of Anchorage, which was about the farthest point you could be away from the epicenter of the quake and still be in Anchorage. So, you know, my husband reports that he got tossed around quite a bit, but when you look at our house, the cupboard doors didn't even open. So we really fared well. But as I said, kind of like those pictures you see of a tornado where the houses on one block are absolutely flattened, and yet right across the street, the houses are fine. And that was what we experienced here because of the differences that exist in the soil. The same is true for me, Peter. Um, our home fared well. We, we had things, of course, fall down. We, we lost some pictures. But in comparison to stories I've heard from colleagues, we fared really well. For example, one colleague who lives in Eagle River, Alaska, a community about 15 miles northeast of Anchorage, received a repair quote for her home of $97,000. Christine, how did the employees and judges get through the quake and its aftermath? Well, you know, as, as we were said in response to the last question, you know, there was really a kind of a mixed response. And, you know, kind of depending on what happened at your home and actually where you were in the buildings. I had just arrived at work and was still in my parking place, in the parking lot, getting out of my car when the quake hit. So, I, you know, it really was rocking. But it, my experience was nothing like the experience of people who are on the top floors of these buildings. They thought that they they thought they were going to die, and stuff was falling off the walls, and file cabinets were tipping over, and I didn't see any of that. But if you were if you had that experience as a staff member or a judge, those people when they finally emerged from the building were in shock. I would say, Alice, is that consistent with your experience? That's exactly right, and and even people in my building where I'm at, which is just the highest level, a three-story building, there were varied reactions. I can tell you that the people in the parking lot, as we emerged, you know, we were gathering in the parking lot right after. Some people, you could tell they, they had their wits about them. They were fine. And I think a factor for that was those people who at that time confirmed that their loved ones were safe were more at ease. But then there were other people who the fear on their faces was just so evident. Alice, we heard that there were thousands of aftershocks. They, they just kept coming. How did that affect staff? Actually, Peter, the aftershocks affected everyone in Anchorage and even those well outside of Anchorage. 
As of today, there have been about 9,000 aftershocks. Of these, at least 20 were a magnitude 4.5 or greater. These larger aftershocks have been traumatic for many. For example, I know of at least one staff member who struggled to return to work and stay at work. She sought counseling to work through it. Christine, there is what now has become a fairly iconic video of folks in a courtroom as ceiling tiles dropped to the floor during the quake. So what was the extent of the damage in your various courthouses? Most of the damage was cosmetic. You know, it was cracks in the sheet rock, it was ceiling tiles falling, and of course, furniture turning over. Now, one thing that happened that I made a decision that we weren't going to, that the optics were bad, so we weren't going to advertise this, but we have a giant, giant wooden seal of the state that, that hangs right over the bench where our Supreme Court meets, and that thing just cracked. And, you know, one piece of it was just hanging over the bench. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to tell people that the seal of the state just cracked over the Supreme Court bench. So we kind of ignored that. That was one thing that had to be repaired. But And then everything else uh, that happened, we, you know, our air handling system in, in one of the buildings failed and had to be fixed. And then, and then in one, in our warehouse, we had some shelving that, you know, I mean, when I say shelving, I mean, this is a ton of shelving that had to be, that, that has to be replaced. But the, the somewhat ironic thing is that both of those, both of those problems were things that our maintenance people have been haranguing me about for the last couple years and and you know that air handling system it's really on its last legs you've got to get money you've got to replace it so um they were exactly right but i really appreciate them not saying i told you so in the days after the quake alice of course many of us imagine what we would do during a situation like this but what what was the most significant challenge after the quake One of the most significant challenges right after the quake was traffic gridlock. The courthouse is located in downtown Anchorage, which is bordered on one side by the coast. And there are just a few main roads leading away from the area. After the earthquake, there was a mass exodus, and many of the drivers were in a state of panic, as you can imagine. And during that mass exodus, tsunami warnings were being sent out via cell towers. So even though many Alaskans, or I should say many Anchorage residents, know that the threat of a tsunami to the Anchorage area is minimal, I can speak from my own experience when I tell you that even though I knew that, as I was leaving the downtown area stuck in gridlock, I was fear I was fearful. I was envisioning a tsunami and I thought, well maybe the maybe the stories I heard about tsunami threats to Anchorage before were inaccurate. And maybe this is a true tsunami threat. And so uh, I would say traffic gridlock was certainly a a big issue for our area. Christine, the quake hit first thing in the morning. So describe the rest of your day on the 30th. You know, we have three buildings on this campus. And first reaction 
was anybody hurt? And so the law enforcement and our judicial services immediately swept all three buildings looking for any injuries. And fortunately, no one was hurt. And in fact, no, there were no serious injuries in all of Anchorage, which given the size of the quake is really a miracle. And then traffic gridlock that uh, Alice described was, was real. And so even though employees, you know, kind of wanted to go home and we quickly made the decision that we were going to close for the day, even though employees wanted to go home, they could see around them that cars were just not moving. And in fact, you could, there was so much traffic, you couldn't even get out of the, the parking areas. So people, people stayed here for two, really for two to three hours while the, uh, the uh, traffic cleared. Immediately, our facilities staff, first they swept for injuries, and then they went through to see if there was any obvious structural damage to the buildings or whether it was safe to go back in. Because that's one thing we haven't mentioned, Peter, is that people ran out of the buildings during the quake, and they didn't have, it's the middle of winter, they didn't have their coats, they didn't have their car keys, they didn't have their purses, they didn't have their badges to get back in the building. And and so, you know, first we were con- kind of confronted with what are we going to do with all these people in the parking lot? And we made the the decision, to, at least in the appellate court building where I am, is that people were going to, we were going to risk it and go back into the lobby of the building. And I made it very clear to staff that I cannot promise you that this building is safe. All I can tell you is that it's warm. So you have to make your own decision about whether you're going to come back in or not. And I said that a lot of times in a lot of different situations throughout the day. You know, gradually people could see that the traffic was moving again and they eventually and they eventually went home. I stayed for a, quite a while and went through the buildings with the facilities staff on the initial assessment of what the damage was. But, you know, just because this is my personality, I wanted to get, I wanted things to be back to normal as quickly as possible. And so that's how I spent the rest of the day trying to be sure that the buildings got cleared and inspected over the weekend, that we communicated with the public and with employees. And But the focus was start, start court operations again uh, and our normal schedule as quickly as possible. And we, we were able to do that by Saturday. So we were running arraignment, weekend arraignments, and we were open for DV proceedings um, just about right away. You said you were communicating with the public. What different ways did you use to get the word out? Well, you know, we were really fortunate in Alaska in, in that nobody lost cell phone coverage. And even though everybody in the city was probably on their cell phones, the coverage was good. At least that was my experience. Was it yours, Alice? Yes, definitely. The cell coverage was incredible throughout. And, and many of us commented on the fact that we found it so surprising. And that that was great. And it was kind of funny because the law enforcement officers and judicial services, they have emergency radios. And the, the coverage on those emergency radios was not so good. So, uh, so it would, turned out that the cell phones were, were a much better option. Now, we use a system, and I should have 
I should be able to tell you more about it, called Nixel, which is an emergency response system. So all of the employees on, in the Alaska court system are on this Nixel system. So we can communicate through Nixel with all of our staff. So we that's how we communicated with the staff. And then we communicated with the public through our website and then through communications directly with the press. And our communications office handled those communications with the press. And they kept up all weekend long. So we'll discuss how Alaska's plans to cope with emergencies worked out after this short break. Charleston Carter here, and I'm the trial court administrator from North Carolina, and I'm a great believer in the power of collaboration. They can provide resources and keep us in contact with court professionals all over the world. Now they member, trials out at the NACOM Annual Conference in Las Vegas, July the 21st through the 25th. Details are on our website. Can't attend? Go to our website and click on Join Us. It's just that simple. NACOM has a place for you. We're back. Christine, do your emergency response and continuity of operations plans specifically emphasize earthquakes, or are they more generally focused? Our response plans are organized by type of disaster. So we do have a specific response plan for earthquakes. I would tell you a few things that we learned, however. It had been almost 50 years since we'd had a big a big quake. And so even though that what we call tremors are really common, we weren't adequately planning for a significant earthquake. Our response plans are designed more towards tremors and what to do in that situation. And also, the conventional wisdom in an earthquake is it's generally better to stay inside and get underneath something solid. But what we drill regularly are fire drills. And so employees follow that pattern rather than the earthquake plan. Because of course, the quake was happening. You're not going to grab your, you know, your emergency response plan and look for the instructions on what to do in an earthquake in the middle of the quake. So we had a lot of people who were following our fire drill plan, and we're headed over to to this large hotel complex across the street, which is our gathering point for uh, following in a fire. And of course, at some point, people realized, oh, you know, why would I run out of one building in the middle of an earthquake to go into another building? And our response plan for, for earthquakes, in fact, says you go to the parking area between the buildings. So I, I would say, although we although we do have specific earthquake response plans, they do need a little fine tuning, and somehow we have to reach employees quickly about uh, not following the fire drill plan. Now, in a previous podcast on Hurricane Florence, Caitlin Emmons said that her court had to have contingency plans for their contingency plans. Christine, did you have to improvise very much? Absolutely. Yeah, we definitely did. There were all kinds of things that happened that 
we just hadn't anticipated. You know, we have uh, on this campus, we have a command team, and those are the people who are designated to manage emergencies. And as it turned out, most of those people were gone on that day. And so there were real, there were just a few of us around. And so that was the big improvisation that we had to do. And, you know, you never really know, and I think we're going to talk about this later, you never really, it's hard to know how you yourself are going to respond in an emergency situation or how the people around you are going to respond. People, for example, who were designated at, as our floor monitors, who are, the, who are responsible for getting people, everybody off of their floor. Well, it turns out some of those people were great during drills, but when it came to the real thing, they probably were not a great selection. So we had to do a lot of improvising. Alice, how much different was it going through the actual quake from what the rest of us saw on the national news? That's a a difficult question to answer because so many of us had different experiences depending on our individual circumstances. For example, I think the fact that I was alone during the earthquake made my experience much more frightening than had I been with other people. And I want to add, too, that when I say frightening, I really, there were moments where I was in fear. I, I, I was in fear of loss of life. I mean, that was, I thought this was the big quake. So I guess for me, I would just share that. But then there were other people who told me that they were in a car. And for them, the experience was like, oh, it kind of felt like I had a flat tire. And so those people say their post-earthquake trauma was much, much less because they didn't go through what some other folks went through. And as Christine said earlier, the people who were in the higher levels of buildings, their experience was much more traumatic. And we talked earlier about the courtroom video that was played on national media, and that particular courtroom was on a high level. Whereas in that same building, we have staff in the basement who were barely faced by the earthquake. So. Um, it really was a different experience for many of us. Christine, when did you first develop your emergency plans, and have you had to modify things since the earthquake? I've been at the court system almost 30 years, Peter. Those emergency plans were initially developed before I arrived. So certainly we've reviewed them over the years and modernized them periodically, but we've had emergency plans in place for a long time. And have we modified our earthquake plan? The answer is yes, although we're still working on it. I felt myself very calm and I was able to make decisions and I didn't struggle at all with that. But then I, I realized there were certain things I absolutely could not do. Like I couldn't figure out how to use the Nixle system. And and it's just, it was just because of the trauma. So one of the things that I did right after the earthquake was I went through and I wrote a bunch of canned messages for Nixle so that in the midst of things, I wouldn't have to be figuring out 
what I needed to say. I could just sort of select one of those canned messages because I realized that my, you know, my brain just wasn't, wasn't functioning. We also realized that those of us on the command team needed to have more, more clearly designated responsibilities. One of the things that I wasn't anticipating is being among the employees, at least in, in my building, and have them all looking at me for direction and support and, you know, not just workplace issues, but with their personal issues. Should I try to go home? What about my keys? And somebody definitely needs to be helping employees with those kinds of questions and just providing that personal emotional support that people need after a trauma. And they're going to look to supervisors in management for that kind of assistance. So, and but then there are the big, bigger systemic decisions that need to be made. How are we, you know, um, we need to close, we need to notify the public, we need to notify the rest of the courts throughout the state about the status of, of Anchorage and the appellate courts, which are, of course are kind of the nerve center of the court system. Um, so, so, uh, so one of the things, uh, one of the other things we've gone through and done since the quake was to give each person on our command team an area of responsibility. Now, one unexpected development that the North Carolina court administrators mentioned was dealing with charlatan home repair people. Alice, did folks in Alaska experience that? Fortunately, Peter, I haven't heard any stories like that. But one of the things we have experienced in Anchorage is a shortage of carpenters, electricians, and engineers to perform the home repairs and, and repairs to business buildings that are necessary given the demand. Christine, what sort of staff training does Alaska's court system go through to prepare for disasters like this? We've had a number of drills, and again, we try to do our training by type of disaster. So we've had active shooter drills. We, of course, have fire drills. And then we also do tabletop exercises. And I think all of those have been useful. And there's always a tendency to put these things off in favor of taking care of what seem to be more urgent matters, but you just can't do that. You need to adopt a regular schedule for reviewing all your plans and doing your drills every year, and then you need to religiously stick with that schedule. One of the trainings that I think it would be that I have never had as a court manager, which I think would be useful, is something that I saw in one of the law enforcement officers who was, he actually is engaged to my administrative assistant and so, and is stationed in this courthouse. I know him well. And during the emergency, he was, for some reason, right by my side. And he has training in de-escalating emotional situations. And like most law enforcement officers do. And his ability to calm the people around him was really remarkable. And 
I think that is very useful training for people who are supposed to be able to manage these types of of emergency situations. Now, one criticism I've heard of these plans is that they don't consider the human factor enough. For example, a plan might call for getting back in business in short order, but it doesn't acknowledge that some people may have lost their homes. Christine, do you think that the plans should consider the human factor more? And can they? Well, that was de- that was definitely the hardest thing to work with during this this earthquake and I think that the plans should. There should be a whole training process for, in particular, the management staff about the types of, about the types of things that they are likely to see. We had hysteria. We had people who were outwardly very calm, but then rather unexpectedly would do something totally erratic and you just don't realize that even for people who are outwardly calm that their decision making abilities are usually impaired and i know that i know that mine were during this event and i, I should have mentioned one of the tweaks that we have made to our plan is to be sure that there are at least two people making all of the major decisions so that you have some check against the impairment that people are almost certain to be suffering from. So what was the most surprising thing each of you learned from your experience with the quake? People were so great, just generally. Of course, I've always heard how well people respond in emergency situations, and we certainly saw that. It was kind of wonderful. One of the most surprising things that I learned about this particular quake was the length of the quake. In none of the media reports that I read did I ever see a definitive statement about how long this quake was. So In preparation for this podcast, I called Alaska's Earthquake Center, and I learned that at the hypocenter, which is the point within the earth where an earthquake rupture starts, the quake was only 15 seconds long. And now, depending on how far from the earthquake source you are, the duration and intensity of the earthquake varies. And the person with whom I spoke told me that for those in Anchorage, the duration of the earthquake was anywhere from 30 to 60 seconds. And Christine and I were talking about this in preparation for the podcast. And both of us, our experience, you know, when you say 60 seconds, that just doesn't sound like a lot of time. But I can tell you, for me, that 60 seconds felt like I might be overstating this, but almost felt like five minutes. It felt like a very long time because throughout that time, it just, as Christine said earlier, it's like time slows down. It's you're in a state of panic. You're conflicted about what you should do, how, what you should do to protect yourself. And to hear that it was really just anywhere from 30 to 60 seconds was very surprising. 
Christine, Alice, it's been a delight talking with both of you today. You've given our listeners a lot to think about. As we asked at the beginning of the podcast, what do you think would be some of the takeaways for other court administrators regarding their emergency response plans? With regard to earthquake planning, I would just, I would tell them that there is a lot of misinformation and conflicting viewpoints about earthquake safety. For example, I told you all that I stood under a door frame. Well, I've since learned that that is not a safe place to be. It might be safer than other options, but in my situation, if a quake happens again, I will be getting under my desk, most likely. But I would tell those court administrators who are in earthquake-prone areas to become more informed about earthquake safety and to ensure that your staff members are aware of earthquake safety resources available. I think that's very good advice, Peter. The only And I would only add one thing to that, and that is don't skip those drills and tabletop exercises. Do them regularly, even though it's been 50 years since the last major earthquake. Any last thoughts for our listeners? Because no plan can cover all the possible scenarios that might occur in an emergency situation, we think it's really important to empower employees so that they know that they ultimately, in an emergency situation, they're going to have to make the choice that's best for them, depending on what's going on around them. And so both of us think it's critically important that we communicate that to employees, that any plan and and any delivery or training about a plan makes that message clear. I want to thank Christine and Alice for sharing their thoughts today. What they, their families, and the Alaska court system went through with the earthquake was certainly terrifying. But their experiences and their insights offer us some very valuable lessons. Thanks, Christine. Thank you, Peter. Thanks again, Alice. Thank you, Peter. If you're interested in learning more about Alaska's earthquake and the court's plans for responding to emergencies, including the video of the courtroom during the quake, I invite you to take a look at the show notes section for this podcast on our webpage. So until next month, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leader's Advantage is a regular podcast series on courts and court administration. Look for new episodes the third Thursday of each month. Today's podcast will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.